I've got a great podcast for you this week, talking with Anna Brain about the Pensions Policy Institute's Pension Policy Framework. The report they produced last year is a fantastic piece of work. And this podcast is a must listen for anyone interested in how the UK pension system works and the trade-offs and choices policymakers have to make. I hope you enjoy it. So, yeah, Anna Brain, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on, Tom. I appreciate it. Really good to talk to you. And I thought it'd be helpful just to start. A lot of people know who the Pensions Policy Institute are, but for anyone that doesn't, can you tell me, first of all, who are the Pensions Policy Institute? And also for yourself, how long have you been there and what do you do there? Thank you. So the PPI was established in 2001. It's a not-for-profit educational research organisation. And our work is devoted to improving retirement outcomes. So we do that through research that's grounded in facts and evidence that is used to drive the policy debate and industry conversations. Uh, we're working on a number of different projects at the moment. I've personally been at the Pensions Policy Institute now for about two years, and my role throughout that time has been committed to developing and researching the UK pensions framework. Thank you. I, I guess I mean, the analogy I've heard more than one person use is the PPI is like the pensions version of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. You are just like the authoritative, impartial voice on everything to do with pensions. I think Is that, is that fair? Can I say that? That's kind, Tom. Yes, we, we are certainly independent in everything that we do, and we aim to be fulfilling as broad a role as possible within the pension space, within the retirement space, and to be providing that, uh, that evidence-based policy analysis, essentially, to help policymakers and to help all involved in the, in the retirement industry to, to improve outcomes going forward. And just in the interest of full disclosure, though it makes absolutely no difference, I am I am a governor of the PPI, though that is a very, very light touch role, but I do nominally provide part of the governance structure for the PPI. So there we are. So again, just for the sake of completeness, how does the PPI raise its revenue? So the PPI raises its revenue through membership. So we have a number of, of members across the, uh, the pensions industry, and our research is also sponsored by members and also external organisations as well. Okay. So that's the, that's the formalities out of the way. So to, they're like the framework. This is this is the thing you were working on, what, most of last year? Yes, all of 2021 and 2022. So wow. uh, some brief background is that the concept of the framework was something that the, the PPI had been discussing for, for a long time, and particularly with Aviva, who are a key member of ours. And the idea that we really have for a long time had a huge resource of information and, and research that's available to us about the UK pensions industry and pensions landscape, pension system, essentially. But there's been no way of bringing all of that information together in one place. And uh, all of us will know that that it can be quite difficult in, in some respects to, to gain a clear picture of what's happening across the system and crucially how that's changing over time. So the concept of the framework was born around two or three years ago. We began developing it in 2021. So on our website, you might find there's a publication there that relates to uh, the design of the framework itself. What that does is it talks through why we built the framework, why we chose some of the components that we did, and how we uh, how we brought all of the analysis together. Um, in 2022, our work actually focused on delivering that analysis and, and the research. So we actually started to construct all of the, the analysis behind it, all of the data and the numbers, and then we started to them and bringing them together across the the, uh, the UK pension system to really start looking at some high level outcomes and what they mean for people and for policy. Brilliant. And you built it around three overarching and interacting themes of adequacy, sustainability and fairness. 
Yes. Oh, which yes, which just makes sense, but also just going to talk through what, why did you light upon those three themes and their, their interaction? Well, essentially, we, we actually looked at a number of different themes that we could have chosen. And you might be familiar from sort of broader pensions research that, that there are lots of different ways that you can look at the pension system and essentially how you can measure it, because that, that's how the, the three objectives that we've settled on and that's what their their purpose is to do and it's to measure it not just from an analytical perspective but really what does it mean for outcomes what does it mean for people and what does it mean for institutions within the pension space and through all of the background research that we did the two key factors that come up within work that seeks to understand how any pension system was working is adequacy and sustainability. So adequacy specifically being looking at the extent to which the income people receive in retirement is enough for them to live on. And I know there's a, a lot of different opinions on, on you know, how to define that, and that's one of the challenges we faced. But secondly, of course, sustainability is you know, the, the cost of a pension system. And now that might be the cost to the government, for example, in, a, in terms of state pensions, or it might be to employers in terms of private pensions. But that sustainability element it, it essentially... Uh, there's a there's a really strong interaction and essentially a trade-off there between adequacy and sustainability. You know, it's incredibly difficult to achieve both. And the extent to which we are achieving a balance between the two is often determined by whether or not people think that the outcome that is being delivered is fair. And that was really how we reached the three key objectives that we look at across the pensions framework, as you say, adequacy, sustainability, and fairness. So essentially the, the trade-off between the cost of pensions and the the income that they provide and how that differs across different groups of the population. Okay, but what interests me about that is, and that makes sense, adequacy and sustainability are, are kind of somewhat binary and opposed. So uh, as, as you just touched on there, you know, if, you, if you're too generous, it may not be sustainable. If you focus too much on sustainability, you might sacrifice the adequacy in the short term. Exactly. So there's an obvious tension there. But fairness takes you in a different direction altogether. Fairness is much more of a subjective judgment around issues like the contribution people have made to the system. And I noticed through the report, you're pretty agnostic about the delivery mechanisms, whether it's workplace. I mean, you, you talk about DB versus DC, but it's not about should this be delivered by the state? Should this be delivered by employers? Should this be delivered by individuals? It's about, okay, this is what is happening and this is how it's measured against those three metrics. But within fairness... You know, there's that question, well, if I put more in, shouldn't I get more out? Uh, yeah, well, that's all very well. But look, what about the people who don't have a lot to put in in the first place? Surely we've got to look after them as well. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And I think the subjectivity aspect of fairness is one that we really, you know, it took us a long time to tackle that and to really sort of think about what we, what we really meant by fairness and why we were looking at it. I mean, we defined fairness as being sort of within the framework, an inclusive system that engenders trust provides fair benefits for all and protects people equally from risks in retirement whilst upholding commitments that are made between and within generations. So it sounds like there's quite a lot in there, but we essentially use that to sort of break down the, the different measures that we have within fairness. I think in terms of a reason for including it in the framework, what we try to pick up on and, and touching on that agnostic point that you just made is that retirement outcomes are, are made up of a whole host of different components and different factors that essentially accumulate across people's lifetimes. And what we didn't want to do was specifically sort of, uh, you know, focus on one particular area, for example, whether that was the state pension or whether it was workplace pensions, 
or indeed other means of financial security that people might accumulate over their lifetime as being the the source to which people should be most dependent on it. You know, our, our role is really to report what we're seeing happening as opposed to necessarily sort of making recommendations on or, or assumptions on on what should be happening, if that makes sense. And that fairness role, we've really tried to seek to sort of bring in a more human side mm. to pensions. So we look within their inclusion. We look at engagement, how people are connecting with their pensions. We look at differences between different population groups. And we look at how they're protected as well from poor outcomes. And, and that's, you know, of course, an important part of the system, providing the, the infrastructure, essentially, for people to be able to make those savings, but also making sure, as you say, that we look after those who are unable to. Yeah, no, absolutely makes sense. And I was struck by looking at your kind of your high-level findings. First point to make, perhaps, is that in terms of the overall sustainability of the system. So you divided, and, and by the way, you know, and, and, and you and I were talking about this earlier, there's this fantastic graphic that the PPI have produced, <laughs> right? And anyone listening, you know, I would obviously it doesn't work so well on, on the audio medium, but um, yeah, I yeah. would encourage anybody listening to this, if you haven't seen it already, go and look on the PPI website at this fantastic policy wheel that they have created that divides up the whole landscape into across those three metrics of adequacy, sustainability, and fairness, and then subdivides it into a whole spectrum of different interacting components. It is, I mean, whoever, who, who came up with that design? Because it is a work of genius. <laughs> That was me. <laughs> okay. It was. It was. So we went. We we took a sort of very bottom up level approach to this, and and then we went top down, and then we bottom up and top down again. So the grouping of those factors, uh, I think, was actually the most difficult part of it. Like you say, you know, just very briefly, so that so that listeners have a, a sense of what we mean within each one of them. Adequacy. We look at labour markets. We look at state support. We look at private pension saving. The non pension savings people have. Retirement living costs and retirement outcomes. Underneath there, we've got a whole host of different indicators. Sustainability, we look at population and ageing, financial sustainability and system design. And I, I mentioned uh, some of the fairness content earlier. But yes, you know, to, to put it into one chart was really challenging. And it was actually, you know, I won't take full credit. It was myself and uh, Tim Pike, yes. who is our head of modelling. And uh, we went down and went into the office one day last year and, and we sat and we went through almost every single type of graphic and chart we could possibly think of in order, you know, that could help us to present this whole system on one page in a visual that is immediately understandable or recognisable, essentially. I mean, it does take a little bit of thinking about, but like you say, it breaks down into, into this sort of radial chart. So you've got these concentric rings. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can highlight on there, you can immediately spot, you know, it's colour-coded, so yes. what's doing really well, you know, it's in dark blue and, and, and what's doing less well will go all the way down to red. And that colour-coding, no matter what we're looking at across the, the pension system, whether it's, for example, employment rates or or whether it's system complexity, the colour coding is standardised, that you can really pick out quickly what's doing well and, and, and what's not. Yeah, no, it's really fantastic graphic illustration. And I'm going to go for a complete tangent for a moment. Are you familiar? So, I mean, it's, it's probably my second favourite graph ever. So, <laughs> and, and it's tough, tough comparison because, I mean, just the one that still just captivates me every time I look at it is a guy, French guy called Charles Minard. He came up with this graph of napoleon's march on moscow have you come across that one i haven't okay. no no okay i will i, I will send so uh, it, he tracks okay. 
He tracks Napoleon's army as it marches across Poland and into Russia. It tracks the size of the army, its geographical location. It tracks the temperature. I think it's got five or six different variables within this one chart. Wow. And so you can see on this just one graph, this phenomenal story of this army of half a million men leaving France and setting off for Moscow. And even by the time they get to Moscow, they've lost hundreds of thousands of men. And and then they come back again and there's a couple of Battle of Borodino, I think it is. And then they come back. And there's just this one moment that just, um, I mean, the, 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 the human side of it. This is diminished, much diminished army of only sort of 50,000 men left, something like that. And they get to one river, I think the Berezina, though someone will correct me on that. And they literally lose half the army crossing this river. You know, the line on the other side of the river is half the size it was before it embarked crossing the river. It's just such a huge tragedy. But as a piece of cartography, as a piece of information delivery, it's just breathtaking. Anyway, that, so that's not what we came here to talk about at all. Um, But I would encourage anyone listening to this just to go and have a look at that map because it is all, you know, and your policy wheel is right up there. It's just a lovely piece of work. Um, One of the things we tried to achieve with that as well, just briefly, is is to help people to be able to spot interactions and to be able to look at how different parts of the system sort of relate to each other, you know, and how if one is doing well, you know, given all of the different sort of, you know, connections that exist across the system, how might that impact another area? So looking at those sorts of interactions. But also, I I should have mentioned that this isn't a one-off piece of work. This is a strategic multi-year project. And, you know, we've built the wheel for 2022. Probably important to say that the wheel that we produced in 2022, or the, the visual essentially, is based on data that was published throughout 2022, much of it relate, which relates to uh, 2020 to 2021. Yes. So we'll be refreshing that. So you can see a picture of what it looks like now. The system, or sorry, excuse me, a picture of what it looked like in sort of roughly 2021 when the data was gathered. We'll be able to do that again to refresh that once we've got updated series of data and you'll be able to see the changes over time. And all of those colours will start popping out and showing you exactly what's got better, you know, what might have been impacted as a result of it. Brilliant. No, I look forward to that. And, and Aviva sponsored this from the outset. So they've given you a long-term commitment to keep some Supporting it? Yes, um, we are committed to working on the framework certainly for the next couple of years. And we are very excited to see where it takes us, as well as being able to look at the changes over the next two to three years as we work through the data that comes out in the system. We're also able to use this to do some scenario analysis. So this will be quite exciting. And I think the work that we'll be doing this year will also focus on saying, you know, what if for example, the state pension age was raised to a certain level, for example, being able to to model various changes in the system, particularly where there are policy implications associated with that or policy proposals that are underway, we'd be able to draw some assumptions across the indicators and try and build a picture of what that change might look like. So Aviva have been hugely supportive throughout and we're very grateful for their support for the project. Brilliant. I was going to ask you about the state pension age because, of course, that, that is impending, this looming announcement around the possible change changes to the, the delivery ages for the state pension. And so I guess the fact that you can feed that into the machine and pull the lever and say, well, this is what it will do for adequacy. This is what it'll do for fairness. This is what it'll do for sustainability if you make these changes. From a policymaker point of view, that's hugely valuable. I hope or, or perhaps so. unwelcome, I, I in fact. This, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, this is this is the thing. It depends what, what it turns out. But but actually, you know, it's a really interesting one that the state pension said. For anybody who's interested in what that might look like, we actually have a case study in the, the report that was published this year. And the reason we've put that in there is because, you know, the state pension age and changes to the state pension age absolutely capture these relationships and interactions between adequacy, sustainability and fairness. Mm. And it, it looks at, you know, why those changes are having to be made in to, to reflect, you know, sort of changing demographic and economic circumstances. But it also looks at what the implications are for individuals and the extent to which they may be fair. We don't draw any conclusions on what the state of pension age should be, but we do certainly highlight a number of concerns that would emerge, you know, from, from analysis relating to sort of state pension age increases. And they particularly relate to people who are not able to work up until state pension age. So that's a really key theme that you'll see coming out of the research. That's partly because, you know, for for some workers who have private savings, uh, whether that's private pension savings or or other means of financial resilience of any kind, you know, having to draw upon those savings before receiving a state pension age can really have a detrimental impact on the adequacy in the longer term. But also for those that don't have those savings to depend on, for example, that are not able to work to later life. The difference between benefits that are provided to people of working age, so below state pension age and those above is really significant. And we're already starting to see increases in in, in poverty rates among that very specific population. So we really highlight, we think that, you know, highlight the trade-offs between adequacy and sustainability and and the impacts there that you see in terms of fairness, particularly for lower income groups. And state pension age is a a really interesting uh, case study of doing that. But like I say, we don't draw any conclusions on what they should be, but, but we can certainly use this research very much to highlight the concerns that might arise around. Brilliant, really interesting. And on the the sustainability front, so just thinking about your the, the sort of top level findings. Oh, by the way, coming back to the colour wheel, it was I thought it was interesting that the only component on the entire wheel that was getting top marks was DB provision, right? The one bit of the UK yes. pension system that's going backwards faster than any other is the yeah. only bit that's really, really good. Um, the accruals, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing that, but that kind mm. of essentially was the takeaway from that bit. But I was interested in terms of the just kind of top-level findings. So the sort of sustainability picture didn't look too bad. Yeah, that's right. And I think if you were to have conducted this research, you know, say, 20, 20 years ago or so, this would have looked very different. You would have had much more significant concerns around financial sustainability, mm. particularly for the state, also for employers. You know, a lot of that would be arising from the cost of DB pensions. But th- there would have been a knock-on effect there in terms of in, in, in adequacy, for example. But what you really see, so like you say, the sustainability side of things comes out to be reasonably okay. It's a sort of net positive, essentially. Mm. And, you know, that's because generally the policy changes and economic changes that have been introduced to improve that financial sustainability for those different institutions has really had a stabilising effect on the longer term outlook. Of course, there are still concerns around that. This is by no means, you know, a solved problem, but it's better than it was. And there is also an element in there of having improved the design of the pension system. You will know better than anyone, I'm sure as well, that that over time, the layers and layers and layers of policy change that have been implemented have led to significant complexity. And, you know, I think very interestingly in the pension system over recent years, 
certainly in the state pension system, the move to reduce that complexity in it is starting to have you know fairly beneficial outcomes in terms of how people can connect with the pension system, how they can understand what might be available to them, and you know reducing some of those um, those challenges that people have in really being able to manage their own retirement plans. But you know, at the same time, what we also noticed was that. Whilst we're simplifying the state pension system by having removed the earnings-related aspect of pensions, for example, by having introduced the flat rate state pension, we are increasing or we're seeing significantly greater complexity in the private pension system. And this is quite concerning because, you know, along with these changes towards greater financial sustainability come the requirement for people to be more personally responsible for their retirement outcomes. You know, that goes hand in hand with with DC pensions and, and, you know, the huge increase in the number of people who are now receiving DC pensions, which is, you know, one of the greatest achievements that we've seen within the UK pension system, of course. But, you know, it it does paint a different picture. And and again, it's one where you start to see the trade-offs that by by shifting some of the responsibility for the earnings-related pensions, for example, from the state to employers, uh, and by shifting some of the responsibility for some of the retirement risks, you know, uh, risks like longevity risks, inflation risks, investment risks, Mm. by shifting these over to the individual, you know, we're starting to see a very different picture emerge and one that requires people to have an increasingly good understanding of, you know, what they might need in later life and how to achieve it. And that's something that that hasn't really been a huge feature of the UK pension system in the past. No, because for a long time it just it just wasn't wasn't necessary. I know, you know, exactly. and cre- credit to Sir Steve Webb, who I think was a contributor to the report. Yes, he was on our advisory group. We were very very fortunate to have a very esteemed advisory group who supported us on this work, and uh, they have been involved from the outset in helping us to understand what people want from this kind of analysis and how it can be used, but also the really the key components, how we measure things, how we define things and different parts of the system. So Steve played a, a, a very key role in this. He he also was part of our, our launch in November, provides fantastic challenge to the work, along with other very eminent you know, pensions experts. Baroness Jean Drake was part of the board. We had David Fares from the Pensions Regulator and Nick Barr, Public Professor of Economics at London School of Economics. You know, so some really, really eminent experts in pensions. And we're very grateful for all of the help that they have given towards making this into what it is today. Yeah, no, and it shows. So, of course, Steve was you know, he can take a lot of the credit for the for the reforms to state pension in the early part of the 2010s mm. um, and driving through that that those changes. Look, it's still not perfect, but I think it, everyone would agree it's probably better than it was before. Exactly, um, and it's simpler. But you know, and you you made the point there about adequacy and the shift to DC pensions. And one of the things you highlight in the policy report is is this question of engagement of DC contributions of people's decision-making, and as, as well as other stuff like you know, low earnings growth, low financial resilience, you know, um, and, and actually the support for decision-making as well. Mm. You know, the FCA has done quite a lot of work around retirement outcomes. Personally, I think, you know, there's, there's more to be done there. Interesting, they've just kicked off another thematic review of, of retirement outcomes. You know, I think they recognise it's still not, it's a long way from job done. So, so that question of adequacy doesn't look so great. And actually, you guys were highlighting funding rates. I think you quoted sort of 12 to 16%. 
in the report as being, you know, that 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 would look a bit better. And of course, that still falls short of what we'd see on DB pensions. But mm. here we are with an auto enrollment rate of eight percent. People are in some cases getting less than that because because they don't get it on their total earnings. Self-employed people aren't getting it all. That's perhaps more a question of fairness. But mm. but you know, there's still a lot of gaps there, aren't there? Yeah, there are. And um, and and I think you raise a couple of really important points. I mean, the idea that really to achieve a retirement income that is proportionally adequate to your to your working life income, you know, most people would need to contribute somewhere between twelve and sixteen percent of their salary throughout their working life. So that that's something that we found in our research. It's also been you know, replicated in various other pieces of research that have been produced. But I think the key thing to say with that is that what we wouldn't be advocating for would be an immediate increase, you know, to that level. Because <laughs> I think a lot of things would break if you did that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, but, but I think the key thing is is you know over time that's what we want people, you know, that that's what people would need to be doing in order mm. to 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 avoid this problem of undersaving, which really becomes, you know, you know, hugely apparent in 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 the research that we've undertaken, but also uh, research that is produced elsewhere as well. Undersaving is is definitely one of the, the biggest challenges to have emerged from the transition from DB to DC, and essentially from this shift from you know focusing on the sustainability of the pension system. Now, adequacy, you know, as a product of that, is is looking much more net negative. But also really important to say there as well that you know we focus. A, a lot of the conversation, both within the report and the research on private pensions. But one of the key themes that came out of this was the crucial importance of the role of the state pension in retirement income. You know, and more than 50% of households will have more than half of their uh, mm. retirement income from the state pension. So it really is maintaining this focus on the state pension and its role as being the absolute the foundation, essentially, for adequacy in retirement. And that involves a number of things, of course. It, you know, you need to look at people's, you know, sort of working patterns, but crucially, the triple lock and, uh, you know, the value that that brings in terms of making sure that, you know, the increases are, you know, sort of going up at, at an appropriate rate is really important to outcomes. And it's only really in recent years that we've started to see retirement income rising slightly faster than, than working life income. And it is thanks to that, uh, to that triple lock and, you know, the, the role that the state pension plays within the retirement income of most households. Well, I, know I would absolutely agree with you about the role of the state pension. And I think in the pensions industry, the private sector, it's kind of easy to forget how important mm. that bit is because we tend to focus on the bit that we do, which is understandable. But, but I mean, the, the triple lock's an interesting one because yes, it has been, it's, you know, it's had a huge impact. Again, credit to Steve Webb for that. It's had a huge impact over the last ten years in how it's, it's just gradually improved year at a time mm. um, retirement outcomes. I guess the question is, if you keep doing that for long enough, the entire GDP of the UK will, will go on <laughs> the state pension. So, you know, mm, at, mm. at some point we have to change yeah. that, don't we? Yeah, exactly. And I think it's worth, you know, thinking about that in, in the wider context as well of, of, you know, the full sort of suite of, you know, of, of state support that is available to people and essentially sort of, you know, the welfare state. Because means-tested benefits are also a really, really important factor to think about when we're looking at retired households, because there are still there is still significant dependency on means-tested benefits in retirement. And we still have a, a real problem with people not necessarily accessing the benefits they're entitled to, and therefore they might be missing out on payments that could really, really help the adequacy that they have. So all of these things, as you say, they have to be looked at together as, as an overall package. And that's where you know, we hope that the pensions policy framework can really start to make a difference. You know, what happens if the if the triple lock, for example, is not continued? Uh, what happens if it's continued beyond a certain point, for example? You know, it's 
all of these things, you, you're able to, to start to do some modelling and start to look at what sort of groups would be affected and how they might be affected. But really looking at all of these things together as a whole is crucial. And alongside that, two other aspects that are slightly beyond our pay grade here in the pensions world, but are critically important here. Health and social care is one of the things mm. you highlighted in the report mm. and the yes. impact that has on, on you know, the, that as a consideration in, in terms of looking at pensions, fairness, adequacy, and sustainability, and also housing. You know, this this slow motion shift going on with levels of home ownership that, you know, if we come for, come back in another generation or two's time, the world will look so different because mm. when we look at the 20, 30, even 40-somethings of today, levels of home ownership are so much lower. So it's not an immediate problem, but it is going to become an emerging and really significant one over time. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, pensions, when we think about you know, what we encourage people to plan for in retirement, they're typically, you know, the assumptions around those are typically based on, on people reaching retirement as homeowners. Yeah. And, you know, those who might reach retirement, whether they're renting or whether they haven't fully paid off a mortgage, for example, will find themselves with very different needs that they may not have had the opportunity to plan for throughout their working life, not least because, you know, contributing to pensions is expensive. And, you know, particularly in a climate like today, you know, all of these responsibilities and, and obligations that people have place different pressures on their working life income. And it's not necessarily possible for people to always set aside that much. So the housing data that we found is, you know, it, it really does raise concerns around the number of people who who may not be reaching retirement as homeowners. At the moment, home ownership among people over state pension age is the highest it's ever been. But that's a product of, of you know, sort of 10, 20, 30, 40, mm. 50 years. Like you say, we'll, we're likely to see those changes coming through in the next 20 to 30 years. But also the, the health and social care that you mentioned. So we've looked at it in two different ways. We first of all looked at health and social care from the perspective of costs to the state in terms of financial sustainability. And that's because essentially, you know, all of these, the, the costs that we have, whether it's a state pension or, or health and social care system, you know, they are all related to supporting people through later life, but they are all essentially competing for, for public funding. So, so those, again, they just indicate that there are tensions there in, in terms of what might be available. Um, and also to individuals, because again, you know, as everyone will know, you know, there is still a great deal of uncertainty, both at an individual and at, you know, a policy level of, of what might be needed, you know, in terms of paying for social care. Nobody is able to predict that for themselves, which makes it incredibly difficult to plan for. But at the same time, we really still don't have, you know, a high degree of certainty over what policy changes might be implemented in order to help people be more certain about what they face in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's striking this very topical debate at the moment around funding for the NHS. Huge challenge for the government in how mm. it addresses these costs, but also huge challenges for individuals who mm. have somehow to take account of the provision, particularly social care costs, but increasingly for healthcare costs yes. as well, yeah. and how yeah. they factor that into their financial plans. And if they're less able to draw on guaranteed incomes. Yes, they've got their state pension, but we're seeing a decline of DB. So they're looking at DC pots and how they manage this uncertain pot of money that fluctuates in value over an uncertain period of time against uncertain liabilities because they're not sure what their health and social care costs will be in the future. Mm. You know, there's a lot of moving parts there that people can't control. And yet we're asking them to make decisions on it all. 
Exactly. And you raise a really important point there, Tom, about accumulation. And this was another of our key findings. There's a lot of inconsistencies in the, the pension system as it stands at the moment. And I think what the framework shows is that one of the reasons for that is because we're still going through this huge transition from DB to DC, from towards improving you know, sustainability, but also then trying to make sure that's not at the expense of adequacy. So this transition is still underway. And, you know, automatic enrolment, for example, has made things much, much easier during working life. People really don't have to make difficult decisions around, you know, whether they should save into a pension or if they do, what the, the best investment strategy might be for them. You know, we have defaults now that really help people, you know, to go through that process that have, as we've seen, have had an incredibly positive impact on the number of people saving. But we don't yet have the same support for people in retirement. And that decumulation phase, when people start to access their pensions, the options they have available are quite broad. They're, they're ones that you know many, many people will not necessarily have had to interact with or to think about through their working life. They can be very, very challenging. And exactly as you say, there's still a huge amount of uncertainty over things like health and social care costs and you know the impact that might have on what people choose to make available to themselves during later life. Yeah, and I think we'll hear a lot more about this that this year, not just from the FCA we've already mentioned, but the DWP's working on on mm. decumulation. John Greenwood, who we had on this podcast recently, highlighted as you know, this is that is the theme for this year is decumulation. Yeah. I think you know it's not an unreasonable prediction to make that we're going to see a lot of focus in that space. You also just touch on, and this kind of follows on a bit from the auto enrollment. The report touches on the sort of behavioural versus economic incentives around sort of retirement. And we've talked about some of the defaults and the FCA has done some stuff around retirement pathways to try and help people. Of course, we've got, you know, this then touches a bit on the tax system as well, you know. So so that whole architecture of how we try and steer people's behaviour, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts around all of that. Yeah, this this is a really complex issue, isn't it? I think it's worth just saying, first of all, we, we have tax relief in the framework as part of the adequacy section. But one of the things that we looked in great detail at data that was provided to us to really understand you know, what impact tax relief is having on people's end outcomes and possibly on their behaviours as well. And we had to conclude from the data that we had available to this year, to us this year, we can't identify the outcomes that we're looking for in the framework at the moment. They're just, it's in order to understand the implications, like I say, of the tax system on behaviours and on outcomes, we need to have a far, far more robust sort of set of analysis, essentially, it's very difficult to be able to draw those. I think overall, the tax question really, again, relates back to the complexity that we have underlying the system. And if there were changes to be made, they would affect people very, very differently. And that particularly relates to those that are in DB schemes. And that's not just private sector DB schemes, of course, but that's public sector too. So really, that's an area that we we wanted to do more work on in the framework, but I think we feel that we'd need to have a more robust set of data in order to start, you know, drawing some conclusions from it. I mean, that itself is really interesting. Because yeah. I think we can all agree that the UK pension tax <laughs> system is not simple um, yeah. and how it consists of a considerable number of moving parts, some of which don't always work in synchronisation or in harmony. And I think probably everybody's got their favourite bit of the pension tax system they dislike. Um, <laughs> so... Are you guys looking to do more work, again, in a purely kind of neutral and objective kind of way, because that's what the PPI does, to look in more detail at that data around the pension tax system and the impact of different aspects of it on those 
outcomes that you ultimately feed into the report? Yeah, we're going to revisit the data that's available. Yes, there were three areas actually that we looked at. And uh, again, we, we felt that just in the interest of objectivity, essentially, it was best to step away from this. But tax relief is one of them. But yes, we're going to return to it because it's such a crucial part of the of the system, you know, as you say, and the extent to which it influences behaviours. It is really important for us to understand, as well as the impacts that it has on income in later life. The other two areas that we, again, we looked at in terms of data, but for the time being, we we haven't had enough to draw conclusions was decumulation. And the reason around decumulation was because, you know, there's plenty of available data on, on pension pots, but we don't really have a lot of data on people at the moment. And what I mean by that is that, you know, one person can have several different pensions. And for us to really understand whether the decumulation choices that they're making or the way that they access their pension, uh, the choices they make around that are good choices, you need to have a full and a whole picture of that person's profile, essentially. And we don't have that available at the moment. It's something that we're working on within the PPI. We've got a very interesting project underway with that. The other area, the third area that we also found at the moment was difficult. Again, I think there's a consensus of this across the industry, was measuring the impact of ESG factors on investment outcomes. So those three areas are all certainly ones that we want to revisit. But I think your, your point there about the behavioral side of things is very, very interesting because once again, there's a real sort of conflict between should we be trying to sort of nudge people essentially towards certain choices? The automatic enrolment system, of course, is an excellent example of that working. Or should we be you know, implementing essentially a system of defaults that mean that people don't need to be heavily engaged with their pensions, which is the right balance? You know, And, and I think most people would say we need some of both. But you know, in terms of helping people to make decisions, is advice and guidance and engagement, you know, the right approach? Should we only be focusing on that? Should it be done in combination with defaults? If we do defaults, then how do we prompt people to become more actively engaged when a lot of the choices are perhaps, you know, um, taken care of by the, the infrastructure that we put around the savings? All really interesting. And I may be using inappropriate ter- terminology here, so someone will no doubt explain to me where I've gone wrong. But I mean, I think it's fair to say that people's needs at the point of entry into the pension system are relatively homogenous, and therefore yep. it's quite straightforward to, to just say, like, we'll just do this for everybody. We'll auto-enroll them, 8% of default yep. earnings, and, like, and here's a default fund, away you go. That kind of works. Whereas at the other end, people's needs are much more heterogeneous. Exactly. Uh, because everybody's circumstances are unique by the time you get into your 60s. Everybody's exactly. situation is different. So you, it's much harder to use defaults there. So then that leads to, well, we need to engage people. We need to help them make their own decisions because we can't just spoon feed them a, a single solution. Though if we had Henry Tapper on this podcast, he'd probably just say, well, it would just stick everyone into a CDC for decumulation and everything yeah. would be fine kind of approach. And I, th- I think there's a lot more interesting stuff to come out on those kind of solutions and they may... Mm mitigate some of these problems. But I also just wanted to pick up on your, your point around the people question, because because as you pointed out, the FCA does a lot of really good data around retirement income activity. But we see hundreds of thousands of small pots getting flushed out of the system, people just taking them out of cash. But what we don't know is how many of those pots belong, belong to each individual person. And I think that gap in the data, I think you know, you've highlighted a really important point here. And I, I find it astonishing that no one has done this as an exercise. No one has said, okay, let's take a representative sample of the population. Let's take however many hundreds of people you need to do this 
But let's find out, mm. you know, how many people have two, three, six pots? What are they doing with them? You know, because it's easy to look, oh, look, there's a drawdown plan where someone's taking 10% income out. Mm. Is that a good thing or not? I don't know. Mm. It depends what else they've got. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, there's a number of other factors that come into it, like I said before, homeownership is one, but we've also looked at intergenerational transfers in here as well and looking at changing trends in gifts and loans that people might receive throughout their working life, but, all, but also inheritance, perhaps, and, and the age at which that, you know, that sort of appears. At the moment, there's not been huge changes in those numbers. It will be interesting to see if that changes over time, because again, those sorts of things and expectations that people may or may not have can also influence behaviours. So again, all of these different profiles and different trends, what we'd love to be able to do with this, Tom, is we'd love to be able to have, you know, like you say, you know, something that brings together all of this information, a representative sample where we, we tap in and we understand more about each individual in relation to every single one of these outcomes. That would be my dream. <laughs> well, clearly, it is, it is beyond the resources of a exactly. modest, leaf-based financial services exactly. consultancy. However, exactly. if, if anyone out there is listening to this, they've got a big bag of money sitting on their desk and they're wondering what to do with it. And I think particularly on the tax stuff, particularly on the retirement income stuff, but maybe also on the intergenerational stuff, are your doors open to have conversations <laughs> with people around these these sort of, sort of supporting research projects? I think the key thing though is that you know we one of the things we we really realised just when we started undertaking the the design process and really thinking what do we want the framework to do is that the scope for this is just enormous. You know where do you draw the line in terms of what to include? But we also very very early on you know were cautioned you know very succinctly and very well by our advisory group and by people who are sort of helping to engage with the project just because it's not perfect that doesn't mean it should be good enough you know don't let it perfect get in the way of good yeah is that right no yeah yeah don't let the yeah. best be the enemy of the good yeah there we um, are thank you yes no but but this is a key thing for us as well is that you know this gives us a really good starting point because there is nothing like this that brings this kind of research together there's lots of different like i say individual pieces of analysis and you'll have seen of course in international pension frameworks, which are fantastic. And they are extremely adept in helping us to understand the differences between different pension systems. But what our framework does, you know, a little bit differently is this is written for the UK pension system. And it really drills down into, into how, you know, the complexities of our system are changing over time and its strengths and vulnerabilities. So bespoke essentially without having to worry about how we perhaps define or measure a certain indicator, you know, that, that might be undertaken in different ways in different systems. So the first edition of the framework that we have, it's been a wonderful piece to work on. You know, we're really, really thrilled with the outcome, but there's a long way to go and we're really excited to see where it takes us. And when will we see the next iteration of work on this? So we are likely to be carrying out probably one or two case studies this year. That's where we'll be looking at some scenario analysis. We are just starting to put together some scope for the year ahead at the moment. So I would hope that within the next couple of months, we should be able to release some information about where we're looking to take it this year. So this year, we'll be focusing, like I say, on the scenario analysis. We'll be looking to do a complete refresh of the framework, I think, possibly within the next sort of 18 to 24 months. What we're really looking to do is to make sure that, that we have enough data to really highlight the differences. Some of the, the numbers that we use are only produced every two years, some of them are every year. So we want to be able to bring all of that together and really see exactly what the changes are. I think also looking at the impact of you know, inflation this year will be, will be really important, but the data for what's happening now 
will not be available for us you know, in published form to, to use for research purposes until at least next year. So we're looking at all of those things together. But in the meantime, very exciting probably to see some scenario analysis of potential policy proposals. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing more in due course. And we'll put a link on the, the podcast notes to where people can find the current version of the report. Anna Brain, thank you very much for talking to me today. It's been really interesting. Thank you so much, Tom. I've really enjoyed it. And if anybody would like any more information on the UK Pensions Framework or at all on the policy research that we undertake at the PPI, please do feel free to get in touch. Fantastic, Anna. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.